have to tell you, I decided today we're doing a, what I, I was just kind of thinking it's a little chat, so it would be best if, if I just sit down and we, we talk about some things. And in the, <laughs> I wish you could have been here, in the first service, I picked the wrong chair. And so I was literally seated like this, and we're, we, we think I get a big chair so I, can, I don't have to look up at the iPad today. In uh, February, on February 1st of 2017, the stage was, was set for uh, a record to be broken. It's a record that some of you will care about, and some of you, I'm sure, won't. Uh, but an Instagram post broke the record for the most likes. In the month of February 2017, it received over 11 and a half million likes. Now, if, if you know about the records today, then you'll, you're aware that it's not close. And if you have ADD and you're tempted to grab your phone and look, I'll tell you what it is, okay? The record today is held by an egg. There's an egg that has received over 54 million likes, but I don't want to talk about the egg. I want to talk about the one in 2017. It happened when Beyonce announced that she and her husband, Jay-Z, and Z is not his last name. This was news to me till this week. It's Carter, I believe. But she announced that they were expecting twins. And here's what she wrote. We would like to share our love and happiness. We've been blessed two times over. We are incredibly grateful that our family will be growing by two, and we thank you for your well wishes. Now, at the time, seemingly the whole world rejoiced with the couple uh, at the marvel of two babies growing inside one of the most famous people in the world. Beyonce later commented that when she heard the heartbeat of those children for the first time, it was the best music she had ever heard. Well, the festive mood continued in August of 2017. I think Kensington Palace announced that Prince William and Catherine were expecting another child, their third and a baby was going to be born that could one day be the king or queen of England. And the world celebrated, really celebrated for both couples and their babies. And if you look in the 500,000 plus comments that followed Beyonce's announcement, no one referred to those babies as fetuses, or as clumps of cells. And do you know why? Well, it wasn't just because that would be rude and tasteless, although it would be. But it's because of what we innately think about the unborn. We, we know instinctively that what's growing inside of a mother is a human soul. We, we, we know that Dr. Seuss got it right when he wrote in Horton Here's a Who, a person is a person no matter how small. A person is a person 
no matter how small. Now, one of the things that those babies had in common in 2017 was that they were wanted. From all indications, those two families believed that those lives were a precious gift. They were thrilled to be blessed with children. And ideally, that would be the case for all children. Ideally. But the truth is, it's not. Some pregnancies are termed unwanted. And even that language betrays where that's going, doesn't it? No, no civilized person can bring themselves to, to say about a little baby that the child is unwanted. So, we dehumanize the situation and talk about an unwanted pregnancy. See, when, when, when the child is unwanted, it is important to establish that's what, that what's growing in the uterus is not a child, but a choice. And if, if the pregnancy is unwanted, then not the mother, but the woman can choose to terminate it by aborting the fetus, not the child. Now, obviously we're talking about the dignity of every life today, but before I go on, I, there, there are just a, three things that I, I really think I need to say to be sure that we're all on the same page and that you hear my heart First, I want you to know that despite what we're told, this is not a political issue. This is a kingdom of God issue for the followers of God. Now, it may bleed over into the world of politics, but this is for us. Second, I, I think it's important that we acknowledge that any decision that leads to the termination of a child is, is a difficult, painful, complex decision. Typically, typically, people that have the, the resources to support a child and they have a, have a stable home life to bring a child into, typically those people aren't tempted to abort. But I recognize that, that that's not the case for every woman who gets pregnant. There, there are real, seemingly unsolvable resource challenges that some mothers-to-be face. In, in addition... I know there are health issues as well. At, at times, a mother's health is at risk, and at times, a child has health problems that seem overwhelming to a prospective mom, and, and it's understandable that, that the mother wonders if she can provide and care for what's just overwhelming. 
Because of these reasons and, and others, not everyone is going to land where I land, where I hope we will land today. But I do believe that God has something to say about abortion and about the dignity of a child in the womb. And it's my responsibility, despite the difficulty of all those choices and the challenges that women face, it's my responsibility to teach what God revealed in his word about this topic. So that's what I'm going to do today. And third, I need to say that as much as I believe in justice for the unborn, I want you to hear me. As much as I believe in justice for the unborn, I believe in grace for those who have made a decision to terminate a pregnancy. While that's not one of my sins... I know exactly what it is to sin and deserve God's judgment. We all do. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for all sin. There, there is no sin, no sin that escapes his mercy, his tender mercy. Not when the sinner comes humbly to God seeking forgiveness. Early in my ministry in Oklahoma, there was a young mom with two small girls who came to our church. She was not a believer, but she was keenly interested in the things of God and what was going on. And I could just tell there was a heaviness about her that I didn't understand and so she made an appointment to come talk to me, and uh, she began this heartbreaking story about when, when she was in college, she became pregnant. And at the time, she thought there was no way out of the shame and the difficulty except through abortion. And regrettably, she took that path. And I say regrettably because she said regrettably. She was haunted by that choice. It was debilitating for her mentally and physically. It affected every relationship she had. Most importantly, it affected her ability to connect with God. She said that she believed because she took the life of a child that God would not and could not forgive her. And I was all too happy to disabuse her of that notion as I talked about the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever whosoever, whosoever, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter the struggles, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have 
everlasting life through the connection with his son. And I'm happy to report that on that day, she became a believer in Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, it was like the burden was lifted. As we sang today, by his stripes, she was healed. And she got involved in community. And she came to peace with her past because God forgave her of her sins and healed her ultimately healed her of her pain. It wasn't instantaneous. It was a journey. But listen, that's exactly what God does. It's what he does for us when we face the truth about our sin and we trust Jesus to forgive us. And, and let me just say, importantly, it's the truth as much about the sin of abortion as it is about the sin of arrogance, which many of us fall into because we've never been faced with that kind of choice. Both sins will separate us from our Heavenly Father, but both sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He forgives and that is something that we should thank God for. Now, with all that said, what does the Bible say about abortion? Okay, I, I knew the answer, but I'm going to tell you the exercise I went through this week, okay? I was in my study, and I decided to look up abortion on BibleGateway.com, where it looks for every word in the Bible, right? And so I typed in abortion, and this won't surprise you, but it said no results found. Instead, you know what it asked me? Did you mean adoption? Which ironically is an important ministry for those who are considering abortion. So the truth is the Bible doesn't say anything directly about abortion. But what is telling is, now listen, God's perspective on abortion, which is revealed in Scripture, where the Bible makes no distinction between the child inside the mother's womb and the child outside the mother's womb. No distinction. Okay, in, in Exodus 21... After the Ten Commandments have been given, and God has a whole list of rules for the nation of Israel that they're to live by uh, because they're supposed to represent him. All the pagans are living in pagan fashion. And so they're supposed to live differently. And God gives all of these rules. And in chapter 21, there's a law that's tucked in there about how the nation should respond when a pregnant woman is injured. Now, it seems like, to us, this law, we're going to read it in a moment, it just makes perfectly good sense. It's reasonable. But for them in that world, it was totally revolutionary, not only because of what it told them to do about that situation, but because of what it revealed about God, which is the point of the law in Scripture. It points to God. 
And ultimately, it points to Jesus who fulfilled it. But let's look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. I'm going to read it, and we're going to turn to a different passage of Scripture in a moment, but let's start here in Exodus 21. Here's, here's what the Scripture says. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there's serious injury, you're to take life for life. So God says, look, here's what happens. Let's say you're at a kids' baseball game. Isn't it so funny how people get in fights at children's sporting events? There's a kids' baseball game and a fight breaks out and a pregnant woman gets caught up in it. She's attacked and she delivers prematurely. If the baby's safe, then what's supposed to happen is the person who hit her is supposed to pay for the anguish and the medical bills and the legal fees. That's what it says, essentially, whatever the judge allows. But if the baby is harmed, a life is taken, and the offender has to pay. In other words, a murder has occurred and must be dealt with accordingly by the law. Now, why would that be? Why? Because God makes no distinction between the baby in the womb and the baby that has already been born. In other words, the scriptures, and therefore God's law, does not distinguish between the personhood of a prenatal child and a postnatal child. Now, how do I know that? Well, whether a child is inside the womb or outside, it's a human being that's made in the image of God and must be supported and protected. What did Dr. Seuss say? A person's a person, no matter how small. The New American Standard translates that verse that says pregnant woman, translates it with these words. It says woman with child. In the Hebrew, the word used for child there in the womb, clearly, is the same word that's used for a child outside the womb. So, from God's perspective, a person's a person no matter how small. Now, this not only makes sense to us because we believe God's the creator and he made mankind in his image, but actually, and you may be surprised to learn this, it it actually makes sense from the perspective of reason, and it makes sense to the honest thinker, the philosopher, and the ethicist who does not stand where we stand. Looking at it from the total opposite perspective, 
but what happens when the choice to abort is made. Atheist philosopher Peter Singer, who is an evangelist for choice. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He actually questions, now you're going to have to listen closely to me and understand I'm talking about the other perspective, not mine. But he actually questions the idea that birth is the meaningful break point in the person-non-person divide. Okay, so what, what does that mean? That means that the child is no different after it comes through the birth canal. It's the same thing in the womb as it is out of the womb. He's saying, let's just be honest about that. He goes on to say that consistency in our thinking demands that if infanticide inside the womb, these are his words, if infanticide inside the womb is legal, then it must be legal outside the womb. Why? Because nothing has changed about the life being terminated just because it passes through the birth canal. Obviously, he was arguing that the birth does not make the fetus a person, and therefore post-birth infanticide should trouble us no more than abortion does. He wasn't alone and isn't. In 2012, medical ethicist Alberto Gibellini and Francesca Minerva published a, a paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics that stated unequivocally, and I'm quoting, after birth abortion, which by the way, is killing a newborn, after birth abortion should be permissible, listen, permissible in all cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. Medical ethics. After birth abortion should be permissible in all cases where abortion is, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. In other words, if we're going to be consistent in our thinking and in our laws, we need to acknowledge that what's legal in the womb should be legal outside the womb because there's nothing different in there than out here. Now, as disgusting as that notion is, it's perfectly logical. It's actually beautifully consistent. If you do not believe that human beings are in the special category of personhood because they are created by God in the image of God and endowed with dignity, if you do not believe that and... You've legalized the ability to do away with them in the womb, then logically we should be able to do away with them after birth as well. Why? Because they're still in, and this is key, because they are still incapable of living without help. They are still completely dependent. And so, 
if they are unwanted, undesirable, have no utility, which means they have nothing to contribute, then the strongest among us are free to put them out of their misery and to protect ourselves from the trouble that they cause. Scott Sauls, author and pastor, writes these words, As soon as we decide that one form of human life is disposable, we have lost all ability to defend human rights for any form of human life. I'm still quoting. If we believe an unborn child with Down syndrome should be eliminated because going through with the pregnancy could mean a harder life for the family or for the child, if we believe that such a child would become a drain on the family or on society, then let's at least be consistent. If we were to say these sorts of things about an unborn child, then as Peter Singer said, we would have to say the same thing about a child who's been born but has a disease or a difficult personality or undesirable facial features or the, is the wrong gender. Furthermore, and to be consistent, we need to do something about those who are physically weak, have a mental illness, who are poor or elderly and can't take care of themselves. Listen, you, you need to know that historically outside the Judeo-Christian worldview, the world has lived by that principle. No utility, no use, no life. Millions of children who just happen to be born as female have been discarded because they have no utility to the family. Historically, dictators like Hitler have eliminated people who didn't fit the criterion of what could build the state. Where, where in the world did they get that idea? It's evolutionary. Survival of the fittest. If you bring the group down, we can do without you. And so, as Peter Singer says, let's just be consistent. Same thing in the womb as it is out of the womb. But listen, here's, here's what God reveals in his law, in his word. He sees the prenatal child as the same as the postnatal child, made in his image with inherent dignity that must be promoted and protected, prenatal and postnatal. But this isn't the only thing that Scripture has to say about a child in the womb. It also speaks 
in very plain language about God's involvement in creating a baby. I, w- I want you to turn your Bibles, if you have one, like right to the middle. Psalm 139. It's my favorite psalm in the Psalter. And it's a, it's a psalm where David is just reflecting on God's involvement in his life. And how he says, you know, where, where can I run from your presence? There are times where David wanted to flee from God because he, he just wasn't feeling connected or he had been involved in sin or whatever. And he just wanted to run. And he says, well, wherever I go, there you are. And there were times where he was spiritually vibrant and he looked around, oh, God's there too. And so he's just working through that. And right in the middle of the psalm, he says, you you know how I know that's true? I know that's true because you were with me in the beginning. Right from the very start. Look at Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. Listen, God didn't just get involved in King David's life after he was born. He was engaged from the start. And there, there are some great truths in that passage of Scripture. If, you're gonna, if you just want to pick a psalm to meditate on this week, go for Psalm 139. Let me encourage you. But I, I want to point out three things regarding the dignity of a child conceived in a mother's womb that is revealed in this text. First, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God spoke to him, made this clear, David recognizes that his creation was not impersonal, it was personal. It was not impersonal, it was personal. When he was conceived, it wasn't simply the coming together of the sperm and an egg, God was involved in putting together not just a mass of cells and tissue, but King David. God was making David. Listen to how he put it. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Hey, by the way, you are fearfully and wonderfully made from conception. He says, my frame was not hidden, and your eyes saw my unformed body. Listen, you read that, and you can only conclude that God revealed to David that he was just as much David in the womb as he was on the throne. Second, David declares that a growing child in a mother's womb is wonderful, fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a beauty and an awe 
in the creation of a human being. In his own words, David was echoing exactly what God said in the garden. Do you remember he created the first five days? like, that's good, that's good, that's good. Ooh, that's good, that's good, that's good. And he gets to human beings and he said, oh, that's very good. Very good. Wonderfully made in his image. All human life. Good and beautiful. Wonderful. Third, David credits the work of creating the child to God. He doesn't say, look what the man and the woman made. It was God who made. What does he say? He says in, in that passage, you created, you knit, you saw. In other words, you were engaged. Just as it was in the garden, so it is in the tomb. God creates people. He is present and active from the beginning. God forms, God sees, God knows. God creates fearfully and wonderfully the human soul. So, A person is a person, no matter how small. Now, let me just say that in many ways, I know that I'm largely preaching to the choir, right? You come to an evangelical church that believes the Scripture. Most people are going to stand in the pro-life Spot. Probably, probably most of you support the life of the unborn. But, but I would say that what's really critical is that we think of it in just a little bit different way. I think we need to think of being pro-life as being pro-about life. Pro-life, not just for the life of the unborn. I think it's about life, as Jesus said, for the least of these. For the poor, for the needy, for the sick, and for the sinner. And with that last one, we're all included. And the true test of our conviction on this issue, it's not what we say. It's not revealed in how we vote. It's not even revealed in all the stuff we post on Facebook. The true test of your conviction is in what you do. See, I, I think the problem is we say we're pro-life, but we struggle to serve life. Let 
We're not sure what can be done for the unborn. We we can certainly look around and see what can be done for the already born. And if we're pro-life, we must engage. Listen to what the beloved disciple John wrote about this idea that true love is, is demonstrated to others, all others, even those who disagree with us on this topic. Here's what he wrote. This is how we know what love is. Gosh, how would I define love? Oh, here we go. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, Let us not love with words or speech or posts, but with actions and in truth. Don't just say you're pro-life, live pro-life. Give pro-life. So what can we do? Well, one thing you can do is sponsor a child through Compassion International. Did you know that for $38 a month, you can support a child in an underdeveloped country, in a third world country, with education, some health care, and the gospel message, and food. $38 a month. We, we, I'm glad to say, sponsor a child. You know what his name is? I asked Nikki. I couldn't remember. His name is God Bless. How did I forget his name was God Bless? You can sponsor a child for $38 a month. Don't just say you're pro-life. Be pro-life. That's Compassion International. You can foster a child. God has you in a position that you could welcome a child that is in the least of these categories into your home. Pray and be open. You can choose to foster. You you can volunteer or give money to a pregnancy resource center. There are places that are serving these women in this critical moment when they're faced with a choice Because let's face it, a choice is available. And in many pregnancy resource centers, they're able to hear that heartbeat. And remember, Beyonce said that was the best song she ever heard. When you hear the heartbeat, you know. It's not a fetus, it's a child. And you can pray. We can pray. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. We pray and look for opportunities to stand for life. Not to insult people who don't, 
but to serve people who need to know that a person's a person, no matter how small. Will you pray with me? Father, there are all kinds of topics and issues that we we struggle to know what to do or what to think and but we're really thankful lord that you spoke so clearly on this topic and so lord as as we sort through it in our own minds i i pray that you would help us to understand that we're called first and foremost to be your representatives to stand for prenatal and postnatal people, to be pro-life. And we know what that looks like. We know how to love people in that way because Jesus demonstrated it for us. Scripture tells us that he stepped out of time, out of eternity and into time, that he who was rich became poor, that he who was sinless accepted the punishment for our sins so that we could have life. He was pro-life. And he served the least of these. So, Father, I pray that you would convince us of your truth and convict us and lead us to live that truth. Now, if you're here today and you're looking back at decisions in your past and you you're facing the fact that you've been a part of that choice, remember whosoever, whosoever comes to Christ. Whosoever asks for forgiveness is forgiven. Given new life by his stripes, the pain of our past is healed. God will forgive you. Or if you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer. I haven't accepted God's forgiveness. And, and that's not the sin you're dealing with, but you recognize that need to be forgiven and connected to your creator. Listen, place your faith and trust in Jesus today. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, so you could be forgiven and connected to our creator. He died for you and he died for me. And by faith, we come to the life that he came to give us. Some may need to repent of their attitude in this area where we've many perhaps have slipped into arrogance because we are convinced we're on the right side of this. If we just argue a little smarter, we might convince more people that's not the way it works. We serve people into truth, just like Jesus served us into truth. Father, I pray that you would 
lead, guide, and direct us to expand your kingdom by living the pro-life and serving those in need. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. pray, Lord, that we take action where we need to in our lives. And you know what's so beautiful, God, is, is that you sent Jesus to come to die for us, to prove and to show to us, Lord, the value that we are to you, God. And I, I just thank you for that. Lord, we love you. Take care of us this week, God. And most importantly, remind us on a daily basis, Lord, that we are worthy. And so is every human being, whether born or un, is worthy. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name.